3.6. This is God's word. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord, so you are to go, and on a day of fasting and the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. And Baruch the son of Neriah did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then, in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. When Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the king's house into the secretary's chamber, and all the officials were sitting there. Elishama, the secretary, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the officials. And Micaiah told them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the scroll in the hearing of the people. Then all the officials sent Jehudi, the son of Nethaniah, son of Shalamiah, son of Cushi, to say to Baruch, Take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of the people and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, sit down and read it. So Baruch read it to them. When they heard all the words, they turned one to another in fear. And they said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. And they asked Baruch, tell us please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? Baruch answered them, he dictated all these words to me while I wrote them with ink on the scroll. Then the officials said to Baruch, go and hide you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. So they went into the court of the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, and Sariah, the son of Ezreal, 
And Shelemiah the son of Abdeel to seize Baruch, the secretary, and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord hid them. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Take another scroll and write on it, All the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned, and concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit on the throne of David and... His dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them. But they would not hear. Then Jeremiah took another scroll. Gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. As far in, in God's word. Today's main point is that we can't destroy God's word. It's invincible. We could burn some Bibles, but we cannot change the outcome predicted in the Bibles. You can't do it by destroying Bibles. You can't do it by destroying preachers and missionaries. You can't diminish the power of God's word by taking it out of places of governing, out of places of adjudicating, out of places of learning, even out of places of worshiping. You can't change God's word. So our main point is this, is as Christians, we accept or listen to God's word because nothing can stop it from being fulfilled. Our main point today. And today we study a foolish king who had no fear of God, no respect of God's word, and therefore a king who had no wisdom. The foolish king led the nation into a rebellion against God. The foolish king discovered that there's always a price to pay. One wise king named Solomon observed in Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, you don't have any wisdom unless you start with fearing the Lord and fearing his word. Each of us has to answer, you see. The chapter calls out to you. Will I or will I not listen to God? Do I or do I not fear the Lord? Will I or will I not seek what God says? hear what God says, heed what God says, obey what God says. We each have to answer for ourselves before this God. As we discovered last time in chapter 35, the same is true here in chapter 36, that the English word listen comes from the Hebrew word shema. Will we or will we not shema, which means listen, accept, heed, and obey what God says. So there's three points. Point number one, listening. Point number two, not listening. And point number three, God's verdict. So number one, listening from verses 1 through 19. I read it before you, but just let me review. The officials heard the scroll and feared God, protected the prophet, and told the king. Verse 1 tells us we've moved back in our story to the time of this bad king, Jehoiakim. You remember we're jumping around chronologically. 
we're following themes. And so we're back in the time of King Jehoiakim. However, King Jehoiakim was served by royal officials who had been trained under his father. You might remember a number of times in our chapter, we read the name Josiah, King Josiah. That was Jehoiakim's father. Good King Josiah, bad King Jehoiakim. The officials were still there from the previous regime. Watch for the response of those officials in a moment. In verses 2 and 3, during the time that the army of Babylon had encircled the city of Jerusalem, they were tightening their grip, and God told Jeremiah to prepare a scroll. This first time, up until now, it's been verbal. Now write it down. Uh, Interesting, fascinating for the transmission of Scripture that it was verbal and it became written as well. Here, we're told a little bit about how it all happened. Uh, God told Jeremiah here in verses 2 and 3 to catalog now in writing all of the warnings that Jeremiah had been verbally delivering for 23 years. You might think, well, that's a pretty big project, but that's exactly what we've been studying for all these weeks. The book of Jeremiah is what we're talking about, or at least parts of it. In verses 4 through 8, Jeremiah called a man named Baruch. We met Baruch once before, but chronologically, this is the first time he's introduced into our story. They didn't have printers and copy machines. They had scribes, uh, people with good penmanship whose job it was to write down a copy of whatever it was needed to be written down. So Baruch is a scribe, a copyist, a court reporter. We might call him a stenographer. I looked up this amazing big word I'd love to show off and say, amanuensis. Emanuensis, he was a copyist, a scribe, basically. Verses 9 to 10, the people entered a time of fasting and heard the word of God read out loud. When the words of the scroll were read out loud, they were read out loud in this chapter several times. As the chapter unfolds, it's asking you a question. What would be your response to the word of God being read aloud to you? And there's two responses listed. First, we're studying listening. The second response a little bit later will be not listening. So here in verse 11 is our man who is an example of listening, a man named Micaiah, and he demonstrates listening, the proper reception of the word of God. Micaiah listened to all of the words in their entirety, you notice in verse 11. He was careful. He was thorough. He warmly received the truth of God's message. That's his stance. That's his response. That ought to be ours, of course. Then the royal officials, who had been trained by the previous good king Josiah, remember? When they heard about the words of God in verse 12, they listened. They were warmly interested. In fact, they weren't satisfied with merely a book review that Micaiah was now giving them. Verse 13, so in verse 14, the officials asked for the actual scroll to be brought and read to them out loud from beginning to end. So in verse 15, the scroll was brought. Baruch was appointed to read the whole thing, which he did. In verse 16, the reaction of the officials was a godly fear, a respect for God's word, you see. And they realized that they must report this to the king. You stop and wonder Has the king not heard what Jeremiah has been trying to say for 23 years? Now all of a sudden that it's been written down in a scroll and being read out loud, now all of a sudden you want to bring this forward to the king? But okay, 
we'll take repentance at any time that it comes. Great, bring it forward to the king, which is what they do. They must report it to the king. Verse 17, the royal officials requested confirmation that it was from Jeremiah. Is this authentic? Verse 18, the scribe Baruch testified, yes, it's authentic. It's from Jeremiah. Verse 19, the officials expressed concern for the personal safety of both Jeremiah and his new scribe, Baruch, and asked them both to hide to keep them safe from harm as this word of God goes to the king, as the scroll goes to the king. That's our listening. Now moving to our second point, not listening, clearly put out in our chapter. Despite warnings, the king would not listen and tried to destroy the scroll by burning it. So the response to the word of God being read aloud to this king was that the word of God was officially and totally rejected by the nation's current king within the line of succession of King David. This is a turning point. Chapter 36 is significant. At this point, the cause was lost. All hope of a faithful few to follow God are dashed here. The fate of the kingdom became known even though it would take 18 more years for the country to fully fall. Even during those subsequent years, in the mercy of God, Jeremiah would still be preaching the true offer of grace for those who would turn to God. So verse 20, they report to the king. Verse 21, the king sent for the actual scroll to be read aloud to him. I don't want the cliff notes. Bring me the actual scroll and read it from there. Verse 22, it was winter, so there's a fire going to heat the room. And verse 23, when the scroll was read in front of the king, King Jehoiakim, the bad king, It tells you the kind of king that he was, that he could take it upon himself to cut the scroll into shreds and burn the pieces. This reaction to the scroll, how could we say this in an understated way, deviated starkly from the reaction of the king's father, the former king Josiah, who when he faced a similar circumstance in the previous generation, had quite a different reaction. In the Bible, in the historical record of 2 Kings, chapters 22 and 23, we have the story recorded of what happened when the scroll of the word of God was rediscovered. And King Josiah was the king at that time. And the contrast is supposed to be noticed by us. It's noticed by Jeremiah's first readers. King Josiah had repented. His son, King uh, um, Jehoiakim, would not. God demanded to both kings that the ways of the nation be corrected, but they responded in opposite ways. One listened, one did not. It's just that simple. Josiah was reverent and gained a reprieve for the nation. His son Jehoiakim here was reckless and sealed the doom of the nation. These contrasts between what King Jehoiakim did and what he should have done are listed out for us in the subsequent verses. Verse 23, Jehoiakim used a knife. It was ordinarily a knife that was used to sharpen the pen that would dip in the ink to write more. He took the pen that was supposed to contribute to more writing of God's word and used it to end God's word and to destroy the writings of God's word. It's a contrast of what he should have done and what he did. Another contrast is while Josiah, King Josiah in the past, had torn his clothes in reverence and grief, 
Verse 24 shows us that his son, King Jehoiakim, had no fear of God, and so he tore the scroll and did not tear his own clothes. Another stark contrast for us. Another comparison is verse 25. Well, though three royal officials trained by his father used the younger, urged the younger king not to destroy the scroll, he would not listen. There's your word Shema again. A fourth comparison is where King Jehoiakim's cutting and burning of the scroll after insisting on listening to all of it first was the most deliberate act of defiance against the spoken and written word of God recorded in the entire Bible. This is awful. In verse 26, the king was not satisfied to only destroy the scroll. He next set out to destroy those who produced it. Jeremiah, the prophet, and Baruch, his scribe. It reminds us of the Pharisees calling for the death of Jesus, who is the word of God. Jesus walked right through the crowds. Let me pause and read this for you. Luke 4, 28. When the people heard what Jesus was teaching, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him, Jesus, out of the town and brought him, Jesus, to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him, Jesus, down the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went away. Luke 4, 28 to 30. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Jeremiah 36, verse 26 at the very end where it says, But the Lord hid them. If God's going to keep Jeremiah and Baruch safe, Jeremiah and Baruch will be safe. If God's going to keep his son, the Lord Jesus, safe from a violent crowd, he'll be safe from a violent crowd until the day of God's appointment for him to no longer be safe. God is able to protect his people who fear him, especially Jesus, who is the word of God. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Eventually they did crucify Jesus, the word of God. But that was the end? No, that wasn't the end of the word of God. Jesus rose again after they crucified and buried him. Does it remind you of anything? If we say that something was put into the fire in our passage and burned but didn't actually get destroyed? Think, think, think. Bible. Fire burning, but not burning up. Moses, a prophet. See, Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. It was burning and burning, but not burning up. What does that mean? It means God has words. It means God has words for his prophet Moses. It means God has words for his people. And you can try to burn them, but they'll never be burned up. That's what it means. What does it mean for the scroll? It means God is in this scroll, speaking his words, and God cannot be consumed, for he himself is the consuming fire. It means that the fires that consumed that scroll that day are nothing compared to the fires that will soon consume the entire city of Jerusalem. You haven't won anything, King Jehoiakim. You burned yourself and your city. Brings us to our third point where God actually gave his verdict. The action to attempt to eliminate the word of God was as futile here as it is in any other of the attempts down through world history. The need for a replacement second copy of the scroll. What does that remind you of? Think, a copy of God's word lost and then needing to be reproduced under God's orders. 
You know how the Ten Commandments were written by God, literally his, his finger, if you will, on stone tablets that Moses had, came down, saw the sin of the people. What did he do with the stones? He broke them, and then what did God do? Wrote a second copy of those stones all over again, Exodus thirty-two nineteen and 34, 1. But here, God gave Jehoiakim, King Jehoiakim, a message of unmistakable doom. It's hard to even read. Verses 29, 30, and 31 pronounce God's verdict against King Jehoiakim that he would die unloved, unmourned, and even unburied. Radical uh, curse in that ancient mindset. That King Jehoiakim had sealed his own fate and more. Because he was the king and represented the nation, he sealed the fate of the nation. All hopes of repentance were now removed. The reproduced scroll would be longer containing even more words now from the Lord God. So we learn that God is not deterred in the least by this king's rejection of his word. God is a scroll maker, and he'll just make another one because his word is eternal, and his word still stands. And God will continue to make scrolls. That's the lesson, King Jehoiakim. That's the lesson for all of us. And it's more than that. God is a king maker, and God is a king breaker. Psalm 2 tells us that God will set his Christ to be king forever and his voice in Psalm 2 will be heard no matter how many copies of Psalm 2 have been burned. God's word will endure. Take Isaiah 55. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 13. I I picked a few words out from there. King Jehoiakim did not cut off God's word. King Jehoiakim cut himself off from God. The word transcends the scroll it's written on. The word transcends the pages it's written on. The word transcends the room in which it's proclaimed. The word is the word of God because it's from God. The word transcends the fire, it transcends the knife, it transcends the king who attacked it. The word transcends all because it's God who transcends all. Chapter 36 begins and ends with a command from God to put his word onto a scroll. Verse 2, take a scroll and write in it all the words. Again, verse 28, take another scroll and write out in all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And again in verse 32, Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. Praise God. Chapter 36 serves as an important reminder that as another prophet wrote, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 7 and 8, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Isaiah 47 and 8. Jeremiah would say amen. And if Isaiah is reading Jeremiah's passages, he would say amen. They're saying the same thing. And the apostles in the New Testament echoed it too. The same lesson is repeated and emphasized. For example, the apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 24, Does this sound like Isaiah? Because he's quoting Isaiah. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that's where he ends quoting Isaiah, and this is where Peter adds, Listen, and this word 
is the good news that was preached to you. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. It's Old Testament message. It's New Testament message. It's a message from God to his people. Just as Jehoiakim tried to hurt Jeremiah after burning the scroll, so also in the New Testament, the authorities tried to reject God's word and tried to hurt God's people, his prophets, his preachers, his apostles, and even his son. Jesus didn't merely bring God's word. Jesus is God's word. And the difference between how God hid Jeremiah in our Jeremiah 36 is that Jesus was delivered up by God in order to be the sacrifice for the sins of, our people, of his people. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was crucified. He wasn't hid from harm like Jeremiah and Baruch. He was opened up to all harm. And took it for all the sins. It was the only hope. It always ever was the only hope. Exile won't cut it. We needed the Savior to die for us and rise again. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son did not hide his own son from harm but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The new covenant that's loved in the book of Jeremiah, is fulfilled in Jesus. God the Father protects and hides us in safety, in Christ. But God the Father did not spare his own son, delivered him over to death. He was destroyed. Yet he lives. Jesus rose again. Look at the scroll. The scroll was destroyed. The scroll lives again. They killed Jesus. He rose again. They burned the scroll. He wrote it again. They broke the tablets of stone of the Ten Commandments, and God wrote them again. We are part of an invincible kingdom that has a message that is invincible itself. God announces this in his word. Peter understood this, which is why he could write in 1 Peter 2 or 123, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We're born again of God's invincible word, or you could say it this way, we live because Jesus lives. Our concluding applications then. Number one, I have three. Number one, a polite rejection of God's word is still a rejection. A polite rejection of God's word is still a rejection. We read about a violent rejection of God's word here. Not all rejections of God's word are quite that violent. This one happened with knives and fire. A lot of other rejections of God's word happen much less violently, but they are still rejections of God's word. How many attempts have been made in the centuries from that day to this day to reject God's word, the Bible? Every year at the time of the Reformation celebration, we rehearse the stories, the stories of 500 years ago when attempts were made to ban the Bible, deny the Bible, shorten the Bible, eradicate the Bible in any way they could. Many have risked their lives and some have lost their lives in order to preserve and distribute the word of God or make it more accessible to every person we think of the stories. John Wycliffe, John Huss, William Tyndale. Next Sunday, I aim, Lord willing, to tell the story of William Tyndale next Sunday evening. But the problem is not only in ancient Jerusalem, nor 500 years ago in the time of the Protestant Reformation. The problem of rejecting God's word happens today, subtly, Nonviolently, and yet it's just as clear that people are rejecting God. Scholars take articles and books and comments and use them as knives and take swipes at God's word. It's just the same. 
It seems like they do damage to the Bible, but they don't. They do damage to themselves. That's the lesson of Jeremiah 36. That's the lesson of God's invincible word. Today across our country, for example, the professors in the university classrooms that may not lead their class of students outside the building to actually burn Bibles in a fire pit, though they may, they may not, but it can still be staying within the classroom with just the whiteboard and their words to reject the Bible calmly, right within the classroom, using just words to give a full rejection of God and his word. So a polite rejection of God's word is still a rejection. Second application, the reason God preserves his word is to save sinners. Look at verse 3. God says this. It may be that they will hear all the disasters that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Let me ask you this. If you had been saying to someone, saying to a group of people for 23 years through your messenger that they ought to turn and they had no interest in turning, would you say anything similar to verse 3? Who knows? Maybe they'll turn. The hope, the presentation of evangel, That God's word that he will give an offer to sinners after so many years demonstrates the heart of God. God is not a God of terror, just wanting to scare people. God is a God of salvation, wanting to save people. God's not a God just of conviction, wanting to make everybody feel guilty for the fun they're having. No, God is a God of conversion, wanting people to come to Christ, be completely forgiven, and then fundamentally changed into holy people. Jeremiah is a preacher who shared the heart of God regarding sinners as we know then from now look at verse 7. Jeremiah speaking to a scribe echoes what God said in verse 3. Verse 7. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way for great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. Verse 7. All of God's threatenings of his judgment in hell and his curses and damnation have the one gracious purpose to turn sinners from their sins unto Christ the Savior and to Christ the Word of God. If you don't like damnation and hellfire preaching, you don't understand where it comes from. You don't understand Scripture. The truth needs to be proclaimed. Paul understood this as he wrote Romans 2, 4. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Romans 2, 4. The preaching of fire and brimstone preaching is love. It's verbal love from God through his messenger. It's love to the nations. It's love to the sinners. It's love. It's not a gimmick to get people to run to Christ. It's truth. People need to run to Christ. The reason God preserves his word is to save sinners. Our third final application, believe God when he says it in his word, and stop all of your worrying. We're inwardly fashioned for faith, not for fear. Fear is not our native land. Faith is. We are so made by God that worry and anxiety are sand in the machinery of our lives. Faith is like oil in the machinery of our lives. We live better by faith and confidence than by fear and doubt and anxiety. When we 
have anxiety and worry. Our beings are grasping for breath. These are, this is not our native air. We're not designed to be fretting about everything. But in faith and confidence, we breathe freely. This, this is our native air. One uh, John Hopkins University doctor said, we don't know why it is that worriers die sooner than non-worriers, but we know it's a fact. But we Christians who are simple of mind, we have God and his invincible word and we fear him. We know why people die sooner who worry. They're inwardly constructed, literally, physically, nerve and tissue, brain, cell, combined to that soul, designed for faith, not for fear. Designed for trust, not for worry. God made us this way. To live by worry is to live against reality. Against the reality of the God who made it, against the reality of God who interpreted it through his word. We have no business in the sin of worry. To live by faith is to orient ourselves around his invincible word. It's a direct application of Jeremiah 36. Believe God when he says it in his word and stop all your worrying. 2 Corinthians 1.20 All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That's why it's through Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And lastly, Matthew 24.35 Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. Stop worrying. Stop worrying.